0: But just the other day, I was driving back from school uh, with our daughter. Um, As I did, a sports car sped recklessly around me. Uh, It proceeded to race through a red light. um, It then swerved across traffic into a driveway, uh, only to back out of that driveway again, right into someone's mailbox. Now, fortunately, I don't think it was any of you. I certainly didn't notice a West Valley bumper sticker. This isn't some sort of uh, public uh, renunciation or something, I don't know. But uh, I'll tell you what I thought uh, when that happened. Uh, People like that, people with no regard for the rules, Uh, people with no regard for people around them, surely that is the problem with our society. Uh, What has the world come to? I'm sure that you've had similar experiences, both on the road and more broadly in life, where you could rant about uh, similar things. Uh, Most of us tend to look at the world like this, uh, whether we admit it or not. We divide the world into good people and bad people. And although we might not be so bold as to put it this way, we assume that if the world contained more people like us, well, then uh, things would be a lot better, wouldn't they? Uh, and if anyone was justified to view the world that way, I'd suggest it was this man, Nicodemus. Uh, we're introduced to him in John chapter 3, uh, down there in John chapter 3, verse 1. And now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Uh, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, what we learn off the bat tells us that Nicodemus was a good man, or so it seemed. Firstly, he was a Pharisee, a religious man, part of an exclusive Jewish purity group. Secondly, he was respected. He was a ruler of the Jews. In fact, we learn later that he had a seat on the, the highest Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. Thirdly, he was respectful respected but also respectful. Uh, He approaches Jesus with with reverent curiosity, doesn't he? Uh, He even is open to the idea that Jesus has come from God. Uh, Basically what I'm saying is uh, I'm pretty sure that Nicodemus never blew a red light. Uh, If the world had more people like this, like Nicodemus, uh, there would surely be a lot less to worry about in our society. Uh, And the problem is, if this is how we think, Jesus, in this passage, throws a wrench in the works. Uh, As he interacts with this religious, respected, respectful man, uh, what he says challenges our most basic assumptions about the real problem in the world, what is really going on in our society. You see, it's very easy for us to point the finger. This is something we naturally do. Uh, The problem is them. Uh, And yet, according to Jesus, the problem with humanity is much more inclusive than that, it affects everyone. It affects even you and me. And I say that because he tells us flat out that all of us must be born again. In other words, to know true life, we all need to change in incredibly dramatic ways. Uh, while we're pointing the finger, uh, thinking in terms of them and us, while we're pointing the finger like this, uh, we'll never actually truly understand the good news of Jesus. Jesus. And so, what I want to do this morning is convince you of two things. Uh, Firstly, I want you to see that the problem with the world is much worse than you think. Uh, The problem is much worse than you think. Uh, It isn't just bad people out there. uh, No, it's the good people, uh, good people like you and me. Uh, The problem is worse than you think. But here is the good news the solution to that problem is much better than you imagine. Uh, If we understand the problem correctly, we'll understand the glory of God's solution. In Christ, God has provided what all of us need. In fact, this is why Jesus is here. This is what this book, the Gospel of John, is all about. It was written to convince you of this. As Jesus explains the desperate need we all face, he also explains how he has come as part of a cosmic plan to rescue us. God has a rescue plan to save a helpless humanity. And so let's consider those two big points. The problem is worse than you think, and the solution is better than you can imagine. Uh, Firstly, let's look at the problem. Uh, We find out it's much worse than you think. Uh, And and what is the problem I'm talking about? Uh, When you look at this passage as a whole, really there are two dimensions to this problem as Jesus describes it here. On the one hand, uh, humans are helplessly corrupt. We're helplessly corrupt. Uh, There is a problem deep in our hearts, a problem that is so deep that no amount of religion or or respectability is ever going to touch it. Uh, And secondly, not only are we helplessly corrupt... We're also hopelessly condemned. We are condemned. That is to say, left to ourselves, we are hurtling towards an eternity of judgment. And this is something far, far worse than sickness or war or injustice. And yet it's the fate that rightfully awaits each one of us. And this is what Jesus teaches. And yet people like Nicodemus fail to understand. Uh, They look at the world and they think, "All, all of these terrible things in the world, that's the problem. And they point the finger, look at all the evil out there. Uh, Maybe even the point the finger at God. Uh, How can God allow such evil things to happen? Uh, But as the proverb goes, when you point the finger, there are always three pointing back. Uh, We tend to be blind to this, don't we? We focus on the evil out there, and yet Jesus wants to address the evil in here. And this is what Jesus came to address. And if we don't understand that, we just won't be able to make sense of him. Uh, In fact, that's what we see with Nicodemus, isn't it? This passage is just laced with Nicodemus's confusion. We see this in verse 1. This man came to Jesus by night. Now, people have speculated on why that is. Was he, was he nervous about coming to Jesus? Didn't he want to do this publicly? I'd suggest that, that more reasonably, this night is something of a picture. John does this all the time. The very darkness is, is a symbol of the darkness of Nicodemus' mind. He's in the dark about Jesus Christ. Christ, hence, he says this to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Now, there is no explicit question here, but I'm I'm pretty sure one is implied. This is a man who has seen the miracles and concludes Jesus comes from God. But at, at the same time, if Jesus comes from God, who is Jesus and what on earth is Jesus doing? How do we make sense of Jesus? Why isn't he following all the proper Jewish rules? Why isn't he on side with the Jewish elite against a common enemy, the Romans? Why is he coming and messing up the temple as we saw last week? Whose side is Jesus on? In fact, it's almost as if they're in the middle of a, a football game, the Super Bowl, and, and Jesus is shown upon the field with a soccer ball. Jesus didn't make sense to him. And listen, because uh, Jesus now explains why. What has Nicodemus missed? Why can't he connect the dots? Well, it's because he's failed to see the true nature of humanity's problem. I Look down at verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. As I read this, I, I think of a friend of mine who was buying a home just a few years ago. He and his wife had checked out a few different places and they'd finally settled on one. He was telling me about the house. It needs a lot of work, he said, but but the fundamentals were good. I remember that phrase. The foundations, the walls, the roof, even the windows were good. Of course, it did need a lot of updating. And now this is the problem. This is the way many people view humanity today. They look at humanity and they think, well, look, the fundamentals are good. And maybe the problem with humanity is our environment, perhaps the system in which we're raised. Or maybe we'd be better if we just created more opportunities. Or we pressed people in their individual responsibilities. Maybe if we could lock up all the bad people and and train the good people better, then maybe, maybe then we'd be fine. And in one sense, that really was the hope of people like Nicodemus. It was the the perspective of the Pharisees. Just knuckle down on God's law, take it seriously, try to follow God, and, and surely things will get better eventually. And If that is what you think, then then no, says Jesus Christ. Uh, He gives that perspective, uh, a a resounding statement, you are wrong. Uh, To think that way is to dramatically underestimate humanity's essential problem. Uh, Because Jesus tells us the fundamentals are not good, Uh, no, we are corrupt, helplessly corrupt, down to the very core of our being. Uh, What we need isn't an update. What we need isn't just a bit of renovation. We need rebirth. You must be born again. Everyone must be born again, even to see God's kingdom. We must be born again. The phrase is trivialized today, isn't it? Born again. We talk about born again everything. Born again vegans. Born again runners. All kinds of things. And yet Jesus is pointing to something bigger. He's describing really a miracle. We all need God to perform a miracle in our hearts. In fact, John Calvin put it so well when he writes this. By using the term born again, Jesus means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. And he goes on to draw an implication of that. I think it's the right one. Hence it follows, he writes, that there is nothing in us that is not defective. There is nothing in us that is not defective. And we all must be born again. Uh, The implication is that we're corrupt, corrupt to the very core. And yet Nicodemus doesn't get this, does he? In fact, his response is almost mocking. In verse 4, he says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And yet Jesus doubles down, verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus is even more confused by that. How can this be? He asked. And yet, when you think about it, of all people, Nicodemus should have understood. How could this man have spent his whole life studying God's word, studying the scriptures, and not get this point? He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's an expert in God's law. And what does God's law teach us? If, if you've never read it, I encourage you, read through the Old Testament. When you read through the Old Testament, what does the law teach? What does the history of Israel teach? Does it teach us that humanity is essentially good? When it comes to humanity, does it teach that the fundamentals are good? Does it teach that the human heart can be changed if only we, we double down and try a bit harder at God's commandments? Spoiler alerts, no, it doesn't teach that. In fact, it teaches the very opposite, surely. From the very beginning, we see how our hearts are corrupted through sin and how sin spreads through the world. Our earliest parents turned their backs on God, and ever since, everything has been a mess. Far from being the solution to the problem, God's dealings with Israel, really we could say, acts like a huge x-ray machine on the human heart. It's interesting, one of the things that struck me recently about our church family is that so many of you actually right now have health issues. Uh, Many of you have actually asked for prayer for this because uh, you have issues that seem inexplicable. The only diagnosis you have is that something is wrong and and tests come back inconclusive. This is so often our experience, isn't it? And that's where many people are when they think about the world. It's a mess. They think there's something wrong, but they they don't know why. They don't know what it is. And the whole history of the Old Testament, in fact, human history is like a test. Uh, And let me tell you, the test results here are incredibly conclusive if people are ever going to live rightly, something dramatic needs to change. And that dramatic thing is the human heart. We must be born again. We must be given new life. In fact, the very language Jesus uses, this language of being born of water and the Spirit, it it comes straight from the Old Testament. It comes straight from the prophet Ezekiel, the the very passage that we read earlier where God promised cleansing, where God promised to replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Uh, The Bible is so clear on this. To read the Bible and uh, to conclude that you are good is to be completely blind, and yet that's exactly what we see with Nicodemus. Uh, The Bible is so clear, and yet how often do we fail to see this? And one of the reasons why is that, uh, this might surprise you, but one of the reasons why is that, like Nicodemus, many of us grew up uh, around God's people. Often when we grow up in church, we grow up, don't we, thinking in terms of them and us. Uh, We often view the world as if we are the good, well-raised, respectable Christians. Uh, The problem, of course, is them. It's the ungodly heathens out in the world. Uh, We often tend to reinforce this as parents uh, with our kids, often unknowingly. In fact, we do it when we react certain ways, just as I reacted a a certain way in the car the other day to that terrible driver. We reinforce this message, and yet what we need to know, what our kids need to know is this, that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. No one is born a Christian. Do you know that? We're all born with corrupt hearts in need of the grace of God. And that is what I mean when I say the problem is worse than we thought. What we need is much, much, much more than just moral renovation. The problem isn't that there are bad people out there in the world. No, the problem really is this. There are no good people. It's like the essay competition in the Times of London just a few, uh, well, many years ago. Uh, People were invited to write essays addressing this question, what is the biggest problem in the world? I wonder uh, what you would uh, submit for such an essay. I believe it was G.K. Chesterton who submitted a one-word response. Uh, His essay simply said, me. Do you know this about yourself? That apart from Christ, you are helplessly corrupt. If so, then, uh, then you need to understand it's actually much worse than that. Because according to Jesus, we are helplessly corrupt, yes, but we're also uh, hopelessly condemned. Uh, we're hopelessly condemned. In fact, that, that bad news sits right there in, in verse 18. And now, of course, the problem is we often miss this because we're we're so captured by the glory of verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What better news could there be? It's one of the best known verses in the world. You even see it up on signs in sports stadiums. And verse 17 continues the winning streak. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In light of this, how could we possibly say that we are condemned? Isn't the good news that there is now no condemnation? Yes, we'll come back to that in a moment. But before we do, don't miss verse 18. Uh, There we discover that it's only whoever believes in him who's not condemned. And what about everyone else? What about the mass of humanity? Well, everyone who does not believe is condemned already. And now there's an implicit assumption here, isn't there? The assumption... Uh, here is an assumption Jesus makes about the very state of humanity. Uh, our natural state is to be condemned. It's not as if we're neutral and doing pretty well. No, we've already failed to follow God's commandments. Already we fail to love him with our whole hearts. Already we fail to love our, our friends, our family, our neighbors. Uh, imagine a class in college or in school... Uh, it's graded like this. Uh, 80% of the grade of that class is coursework. Uh, 20% is the exam at the end. And now maybe you've been in this position before where you've actually done really well in a class. And so uh, you uh, enter that final exam in a pretty strong position. In fact, you conclude that even if you fail the exam, you're still going to get a pretty good passing grade. But now switch that around for a a moment. Imagine you were in a situation in which you faced the very opposite Uh, You've done abysmally in the class. You've got an F in every single one of those assignments. And so how demoraling this would be. You go into the final exam only to know you've already failed the class. There's actually no hope. You can go nowhere with it. Well, this is what Jesus says. Humanity, you've failed. You've failed. You've already received a failing grade in life. You already stand at a God's condemnation. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, we could rightly condemn ourselves because we even fail to meet our own imperfect standards. And this is why no amount of moral change or religion or respectability will help. Uh, This is why it doesn't matter how religious or respectable or respectful you are. In fact, you could live the rest of your life perfectly, uh, dotting every I, crossing every T. Uh, But the problem is you've already failed. You've already failed. You are hopelessly condemned and facing God's judgment. Uh, of course, you, you could never live life that way. Uh, even if you could try and live perfectly, you couldn't live life that way because you are helplessly corrupt, remember? Uh, helplessly corrupt, hopelessly condemned. Uh, that is the problem facing humanity. And hopefully you can see why I say it's much worse than we think. Uh, perhaps you know these things kind of theoretically, but, but we don't necessarily live this way day to day, do we? Uh, We miss this. We miss the real nature of humanity's, uh, the depth of humanity's sin. Uh, The problem is much worse than you think. And I mean, I bet you're really glad that you came to church today, aren't you? Uh, To hear something so positive and encouraging, maybe you should have stayed home and listened to Caleb instead. And yet here is the truth. Here is the truth. Left to ourselves, we are floating, drifting off the edge of an eternal cliff into an abyss, unable to help ourselves with no one to help us either. Hopeless, helpless, corrupt, condemned. If we don't understand that, then we haven't even begun to understand the mission of the Lord Jesus. I'm religious. I'm respectable. I'm even respectful to other people. Uh, Can you see why Jesus makes no sense to Nicodemus? Can you see why Jesus makes no sense to people like him today? Uh, But having seen this, uh, we need to move on to the good news, don't we? Uh, We've spent a lot of time on the bad, I know, but I think we need to know how bad this news is if we're going to see the goodness of the good news. Uh, And so here is the good news, the greatest news, God's solution to the problem is better than we imagined. Uh, The solution is better than we imagined. That's our second point. And what is that solution? Well, if I've expressed the problem in terms of helpless corruption and hopeless condemnation, here is the solution. I'm going to call it a holy conspiracy. A holy conspiracy. Now What do I mean by that? Well, I mean God himself, the triune God, has a plan. Uh, from beginning to end, God has a plan to save helpless and hopeless humanity. He has a plan through Christ to deal with the condemnation we deserve, And he has a plan through the power of his spirit to to deal with the corruption that's within us. Not only must we be born again, that's the bad news. But here is the good news, that we can be born again. You can know new life, not because of anything that you do. No, you can know new life only because of what God has done for you and what God can do in you. Uh, We see that especially in verses 16 and following, don't we? Look down at verse 16 again and consider what do we learn about God's plan? What do we learn about this, this holy conspiracy? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God has a salvation plan, and what do we learn about that plan? Uh, well, it's all of God from beginning to end. Uh, we easily miss this because it's so familiar. But, but, but to underscore this, we did you notice the special focus on each person of the Trinity? Uh, there is one God uh, who eternally exists in three persons. It, it's a mystery. But look at the role that each person plays in the plan of God. Uh, firstly, we see the love of the Father, the love of the Father. It's right there at the front of verse 16. Uh, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Now listen, this is not telling us that God loves the world itself as if he loves uh, the animals and the plants. God is not a nature buff. He doesn't love exploring the forests or hiking the mountains. Uh, No, it's the people of the world that God loves. More specifically, the world is the word that John uses to describe people like us, sinful people, corrupt people. God looks at this world and how does he feel I mean, we've made such a mess of it. Uh, The world is filled with such unspeakable evil. And so is God shaking his head? Is he shaking his hands? Is he shaking his fists at us? And no, in one sense we discover here his heart bleeds. Uh, God so loved the world. Uh, This is the love of the Father. Uh, That despite our sin, God loves us. God loves you. God loves me. We need to understand this about God's plan, that the love of the Father is the fountainhead of that plan. God doesn't save you because he has to save you. No, he saves you because he wants to. The love of the Father. But notice how he shows this love. It isn't just a feeling. It isn't sentimental. He loves us not just in word, but also in deed. God loves the world in this way that he gave. And what did he give? Well, he gave his only son, Uh, The love of the Father. Then we have the gift of the Son. The gift of the Son. And and what an incredible gift this is, that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, uh, would take on human flesh to save you and me. In fact, I once heard someone say that verse 16 reads the very opposite of what we'd expect. Uh, What what might we say if we have kids? Well, we might say something like this. "I, I so love my Son that I would give the world for him. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. His son perished on the cross so that people who believe in him might not perish. Or in the words of verse 14, he came to be lifted up. He came to be lifted up. It's such an interesting word, in, in, isn't it? In one sense, it points just to his exaltation. And yet it's very clear Jesus is saying that he's going to be raised up on the cross uh, just as that serpent in the wilderness so that we might look to him in faith and be rescued from our condemnation. He bore the condemnation that we deserved so that we might go free. And that is the sense of of verse 18, isn't it? Let me read that again. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Condemnation is like a fierce storm, and God has provided the shelter, the shelter that we need in Jesus. Uh, But if we won't escape to that shelter, the storm has already begun to take us. Uh, We will face the condemnation we deserve without the saving work of Jesus. And so this is the holy conspiracy I'm talking about. Because of the love of the Father, he gives the gift of the Son. Jesus has become the object of our hope. In fact, so many times, again and again in this passage, we're called to believe in him. He is the one we must put our trust in. But when you think about that, how, how can that be? I mean, I've already said we're helplessly corrupt. Our hearts are dead to God. Our very disposition is to rebel against him. Now, how can corrupt people ever come to God? How can corrupt people like us ever turn and believe in the Lord Jesus? Well, having seen the love of the Father and the gift of the Son, let's consider the power of the Spirit before we close. I mean, all along we've been saying this or all along throughout our service. We've said that God must do something in our hearts, that we must be born again, that we must experience a miracle of new life within. And how does that miracle come about? Well, it comes about by the power of the Spirit. Look down at verse 8 with me. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound but do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Born again, born from above, born of the Spirit. It's all the same thing. Uh, he, the Holy Spirit, is the one who changes our hearts. He invades our hearts, and by His power, He transforms us from within. And that is why I say this is a—that is why I say this is like a holy conspiracy. This is this is God's great plan. Uh, God Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, are on a rescue mission—a rescue mission to save us from our sin. In fact, it is in some ways very much like those moving scenes we've, we've witnessed coming out of Turkey and Syria this last week. Uh, the devastation of those earthquakes is so horrendous, uh, and yet um, really the, the scene of the rescue crews uh, working tirelessly is, it, tirelessly is such an amazing thing. In one video, I saw them pull a newborn child, alive and well, out of the rubble. <clears throat> in another, I saw a whole family rescued out of ruins, And now that rescue work is so complex, one article I read explained the process. First, the rescue crews show up and assess the damage. They look for voids under concrete beams or stairwells where survivors might be. The possibility that the building could collapse further is something that they need to take into consideration, along with other risks, gas leaks, floods, hazardous items like asbestos. While rescue workers attempt to reach survivors, support workers watch the buildings for movement. Uh, These vast crews are involved in the work, usually coordinated by some agency, the UN or the government of the nation. All of these men and women working together to save lives. Uh, We should continue to pray for those involved. Uh, The prospect of finding people now feels like a miracle. And in one sense, the miracle that we read about here in John 3 is like that, except this miracle is far greater Here we read of the divine rescue crew, the almighty God himself, the love of the Father, the gift of the Son, the power of the Spirit, God himself in his triune glory, planning, executing, applying the greatest rescue effort that will ever be seen in human history. Providing us what we really need, the greatest solution of all. Coming into the deep, destructive caverns of the human heart and by the power of the Holy Spirit pulling us out to safety. Addressing our biggest problem, a problem that is far, far worse than we think. And therefore, our only hope is this grand divine conspiracy. Christ came to bear the condemnation we deserve himself. and He came to deal with the corruption within by sending us his Holy Spirit. And what a comfort it is when we recognize this. How it should stir our hearts toward humility. How it should stir us up to pray, to pray for friends, for family, for neighbors who don't yet know the saving work of Jesus. How it should change the way we view ourselves. How it should change the way we view the world. How it should keep us from pointing the finger. We should no longer point the finger as people who know Christ. Instead, we should look up and put our confidence in Jesus. In fact, let's do that now, shall we? Let's pray as we close. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much. Uh, we thank you so much that you are honest with us about our need, that you tell us we must be born again. We need uh, your mercy, the transforming power of your spirit. And so we pray that for each one of us here, you would do that work in our hearts, whether we're old, whether we're young, that, that by your spirit you would give us new life, new birth, that you would regenerate us. And Lord, we thank you for the great work, the rescue plan that you have put in place that, that makes that great work possible. We praise you for your love. We praise you for the gift of your son. And we praise you for the power of your spirit. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.